Uncommon is a production by Neural, a unique digital agency. Neural specializes in content production in the areas that matter most to your content strategy across podcast production, video production, and social media. If you want to increase your conversion or grow your brand trust, head to neural.com to request a callback. That's N-E-U-R-A-L-L-E.com. My name is Jordan Michaelides and I'm the host of Uncommon, a show that asks the why on business, media, current affairs, and sport. If you like this episode, do leave us a written review on your podcast app, particularly if you're on Apple Podcasts, as it does help the feed work out. If you like this sort of content, find all previous guests, just head to neural.com slash uncommon. For the full video, you can search Uncommon Show on YouTube. For social, you can keep up to date with behind the scenes at uncommon underscore show on Instagram. With all that being said, let's get into the episode. My guest this week is Erica Gerarts, founder of cosmetic brand Fluff, co-founder of Frank Body, Willow and Blake, and Little Big Sugar Salt, and a sometime author of a little book <laughs> called Me Too. Um, when I said that I had dirt from Aiden, I was pulling your leg a little bit because oh. in typical Aiden fashion, he will either reply immediately or call me or disappear for 24 to 48 hours. So mm-hmm. I was hurriedly texting him this morning and all he texted me was croissant at Marion or toast at Napier quarter question mark. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's why I have to answer that. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to say, Oh God, I'm really going to show where my true loyalty is. I think my heart is at Marion. Okay. Can sorry, you explain this to the audience? Sorry, Simon, who owns Napier Quarter. Oh, there's just like three places that I go to. I'm a creature of habit in many ways. And I often have breakfasts or dinners at either Marion or Napier Quarter with my friends. Yeah. And that's just, I always make them come to me. And it's one of those two places. <laughs> okay. So I guess you're like myself because there's a few things about your personality, which is very similar to me, I guess, in terms of A-type and mm-hmm. one of those things is I, I get a sense that you're quite or like to be conscientious and in control of things so that's that where freak. yeah yes. so that's where that makes a lot of sense because I I love trying new food it's great it's it's sort of my favorite thing but I also love controlling the risk of a shit meal yeah <laughs> same so like every Friday, I always go to the same cafe around the corner in East Melbourne. Um, do you? How many places do you have like that? It was whittled down to a very small list. Okay. And if someone suggests something new, I'm open to it. But well, there's people that I fully trust their recommendation <laughs> and won't look into it. But then there's other people where I need to challenge them on there. Is Aiden one of those people? I think Aiden knows what I like now. So he suggests things that are within a good, um, that are acceptable. Yeah. Uh, I got to thank Adam. He came to my rescue because the only things I had as openers were the quote that you mostly write emails and then something about equal amounts of plants, dogs, good friends and good food and coffee. So Mm. I was sort of, um, I was struggling there, but uh, that is good. I've never (laughs) been to Marin. I've never been at all. So out. I'll, uh, I'll have to we go check could, it out. We could spend this whole podcast just debating <laughs> Melbourne's best restaurants, if you like. Yes, the best <laughs> cuisines, best restaurants. Um, you as a kid, you're a fraternal twin. Yes. Um, what's sort of your earliest memory of your childhood? This is becoming my favourite question because a year ago I would have told you I have very little memories from my childhood, but having spent almost a year in therapy now, I have gotten a lot better at understanding um, my experience as a kid and and memories coming back. Um, I think I was just a very curious kid, like whether I was on my own or being surrounded by other people, I just loved asking questions and was very like playful in nature. Mm. Um, 
but I've always loved stories and books. And that's one of actually memories that has come back to me and that it was a very specific thing in which my parents would always read a book to me before I went to bed, which I'm sure happens for every, every child. But I think when my parents split up as well, that was like a very sacred time for me when my dad would come back and visit and read to me. So that element of storytelling has actually stayed with me and obviously has quite a significant meaning in my career, but I had Mm. never put those two together. Yeah. I have a similar thing where I love stories, but the reason I loved stories was I love, so growing up in a Greek family, they're a very patriarchal family. And then unfortunately my grandpa died at actually a young age for me, at least I was five or six. And so my grandmother took over that role and uh, it flipped, but it was always the table was sort of like the center of influence. And you would always have these loud conversations. And I think my partner, when she first came into our family was a bit shell shocked by it, like culturally very, very different, different. But there was all these, always these moments of like hushness when someone would have like a really deep and meaningful story. Like maybe we'd be debating about footy and it got into politics and then somehow it became the meaning of life. Mm-hmm. Like it was always something like that. And that's what I loved about it. Mm. Was there, was it anything like that or is it like more of an escapism? I think escapism was definitely a big part of it. And I think that stories or story time represented this beautiful, undramatic quality time with my family. And so I really attached to the stories that I was reading. And I had a lot of like fairy tales when I was little. And there, there was one book, I still have it, and it's called The Angel and the Soldier Boy and There's No Writing. It's just a beautifully illustrated book. And so my dad would make up the story each time. And so you sort of, that probably fostered this like creativity and also like imagination. And it's Uh like, I could tell you the story of the angel and soldier boy, even though anyone who reads it could create a different story. Yeah, right. What was, Mm -hmm. what was the name of the book again? The angel and the soldier boy. The angel and the soldier boy. For me, I don't know why it was Jason and the Argonauts was like the story. I don't know it. Mm. Yeah. It's really like a, interesting the books that define our childhood and then thinking about should we have children, what books will define theirs? Give them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I've actually thought about this a lot because I read a lot. Um, I don't know what to do with that. I've seen things like people just give kids an array of books and then leave them in a room and just let them discover <laughs> what they like yeah. the most and then double down on that. Mm. I think it's more the process of getting them to enjoy reading. Yeah. More than anything. Especially like now more than ever when they're so distracted by screens. Screens. Yeah. That's, that is a big issue. It's so weird watching my little cousins like inherently use an iPhone at two years of age. Yeah. It's strange. Um, I know your parents told you that you could do whatever you wanted when you were growing up and sort of the first landing was law until you got a rude awakening in year 10. (laughs) Um, Do you think though that that really just allowed you to discover, uh, what was it about law? Was it more like the storytelling aspect and then you realise actually 80% of law is reading through shit and 20% is actually the storytelling component? Potentially. I mean, that was such a very small blip on, you know, when I could look at it now, it felt very significant at the time, but it it feels like nothing Nothing. to me now. But, you know, when you're growing up and having to make these decisions in high school and having to pick a place to do work experience, you know, you're just going by what feels right at the time and what you're told by society is might be a successful career and what you have some, what of an interest in. And then when you have connections to someone in a workplace. And I think I liked law in terms of, I really enjoyed debating at school. I was like quite academic and, and, and liked working and just mm. like reading. So I thought hmm, this could be interesting. Um, But when I did it, I was like, this is fine. But there was no emotional connection for me. And something I think was guiding me towards doing something a little bit more creative or purposeful, which is after that, I decided to go into writing. And so I, I personally just didn't find that creative, I guess, stimulus in law. 
Was there like a familial push to do law? Because like for me, I did um, accounting because my dad, my dad was like a fourth generation printer and talked about how doing a trade was laborious and he would always talk it down and talk up a profession. I don't know if that's just a, a like I speak to all my Greek friends and Lebanese friends growing up. It was always, you had to be a professional of some type, yeah. like an accountant or a lawyer. Or Well, it was a secure path. Yeah. You know? It was very secure. It was stable. And that's what most parents and even we might want for our children is just some sense of stability. I don't know many parents or I don't know if I would be the parent to say, yeah, I really hope you just choose a life of instability and risk (laughs) and financial worry and stress and pressure. Like go for that. Yeah. So you can see why people would point them in that direction. And also maybe I just watched too much Ali McBeal. Okay. so (laughs) All of these forces combined. Ali McBeal was your thing, not Law and Order SVU or anything like that? All right. I reckon I watched a few episodes of SVU, but, yeah, definitely loved Ali McBeal. Yeah. Ali McBeal. Ali McBeal, that was on, was that on Channel 7? I don't, I can't even God, that was like a classic. I remember that was like on uh, on reasonably late. Yes. And it would be one of those things that you'd record yes. and watch like the next day. Um God, I'm showing my age there. V, I, know. I feel I feel like v, VCRs, VCRs. That was the shit, kids. Mm. Um, I, I I got from a few interviews that sort of hard work seems to be the bread and butter of your family. I mean, um, your mum, she pops out two twins and then is back to work pretty soon afterwards. It seems. Mm. What personality traits do you think you pulled from your parents? Like, what do you shudder at? at the moment when you sort of like, oh my God, I'm like mom, I'm like dad with this certain thing. Yeah. I, I'm definitely my mother's daughter, like so much. And it pains me at times how similar we are in our stubbornness and our work ethic and our kind of commitment to being independent and not wanting help and wanting to control our own environments uh-huh. And, yeah, my dad is a lot more, he's he's a child in a 60-something-year-old's body. He's so <laughs> playful, so loving, so emotional. And that's definitely in me, but it's something that I push down, I would yeah. say, and that I'm trying to embrace more. Um, but it, And it's a nice combination, to be honest, with my parents and just understanding when I can lean into one as opposed to the other. Yeah. Yeah, that that is nice when you got one of those parents who um I feel like I have something similar with with my parents, although it's my mum who's definitely the more um playful one. My dad's very serious. Mm. Did you find that like you were sort of looking for approval from one parent more than the other growing up? I think I was oh, like my dad was so playful and we had this like childlike friendship. And so I think I was always looking for that to be maintained, like this friendship and this fun. Whereas my mum, it was probably more around work and validation around achievement. Um, But it didn't feel like too much pressure. Like I would never have said, oh, my parents were forceful or expected a whole lot of me. They were very encouraging. And I always say like they enrolled me in absolutely everything, but they didn't push me to do anything which I lamented for a while because I was like, I could have been this, I could have been that if you just made me work harder. But I'm, you know, in hindsight, very grateful that they weren't forceful and just said, cool, you'll be drawn to what you want to be drawn to. Go with it, yeah. Mm. Well, it seems like you were drawn at least to writing. Um, I read here, obviously you went to Star, so you probably grew up in a similar area to myself. Um, the Bayside Bubble. But the Bayside Bubble, yeah. <laughs> um, where did you grow up? I was Bentley Morab and then we moved to Brighton when I was like 14. Yeah, I was Bentley like or maybe till three or something and then East Brighton when I was four. And I emphasize the East Brighton because <laughs> I don't want to be put in Brighton. <laughs> it is It is a lot more different. It's yeah. de- and it was particularly back then although nowadays it's crazy expensive to buy a house in east brighton it's amazing mm. actually how much it's changed mm. i remember um 
yeah. It's, Every now and then I drive past my house I grew up in and it's just very strange because as I'm getting older, I have memories from that area and growing up or I'm trying to distinguish whether they are actual memories or if it's just this like story that I've made up that happened. Yeah, right. Mm. Yeah, it's funny. It's funny how you do that. I get a lot of nostalgia driving down Marriage Road. Yeah. I grew up, uh, what was the street? And that sign, I mean, it was just like there's no right turn into Marriage Road. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. and people would do it anyway. I know. Because um, <laughs> this is do. Brighton. <laughs> um, it's a great no, metaphor what, for life. Fuck, what was the street that we grew up on? I just, I remember this so well. I remember like some of these stories of, um, and it's, it's interesting going past, we've got friends who live around there now just around the corner and uh knowing like the place that we lived in was a is a shithole it was Mm. an absolute shithole and now it's so so different and even in bentley i think i remember in bentley when i was like eight or nine and going around to the footy field and there was like a methadone clinic around the corner and Uh. like picking up uh needles and asking our parents what these were like that was uh it's changed so much now um so much yeah, so you you sort of found journalism. Um, you realised that, that there's something here about you being upset about having to go up to Sydney and then you sort of just realised like, okay, maybe this is just part of life. You studied at Monash and then you went straight into copywriting. So mm-hmm. like they are the same thing in a nutshell, but what was the pull to copywriting? Was it that situation where you come out of uni and you're just like, fuck, I need a job? And then somehow you found something that you actually really like. So the pool was literally a job offer. Um, I assumed that I would move to Sydney and work my way sort of through the magazines or felt like that was maybe the only option because I wanted to get into editorial content. And as I was finishing my uni degree, I got offered a job as a copywriter for a marketing agency. And I was 21 and was just stoked to be offered a job. I didn't even know what copywriting meant. It was when social media was just starting to be used as a term and I remember Googling what is social media Um, and was just like, sure, I'll try this. Like here's the stability of a job. The owner of the agency was young. I was like, he seems nice. I could learn a lot from him. And I I didn't have any other alternative. Yeah, I had the same thing. Was that the second Charlie, this owner Mm -hmm. of this business? Yeah. It's so interesting how like uh, those first jobs are so pivotal because I, I remember I did like my accounting internship and because I did a finance and all that because my dad's like, you have to do that. Absolutely hated it. But the first job I got outside of uni was sort of in the field, but it was in an area where I could open up into many different things. Uh, and like I'm still in contact with the the MD of that business to this day. He's actually a client now of our agency. What were the key aha moments, do you think, at Cassette? I feel really fortunate to have built this relationship with Charlie, the managing director, which is a, a friendship now and very much a sort of informal mentorship as well. He unintentionally or subconsciously taught me how to be a manager or the type of manager of staff that I want to be. I was just discussing with my friend yesterday about how I manage people and I really do think it is just a direct copy and paste from how (laughs) Charlie managed me. So that was really great. And then just this sort of curiosity for learning and trying things and being open to change and then just interacting with people and feedback and and listening was one of the biggest skills I think he taught me in the first year of working at Cassette. So when you were talking about this boss and how pivotal it was, it got me thinking that resignation must have been really hard. Very. But it was, Charlie is very intuitive and he knew and I actually remember it felt like this mutual resignation slash firing. I was like, you don't even really want me here, do you? And he was just like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it was like he knew there was more in me and I always said he was the best and worst boss or first influence in that he taught me everything I knew except he started his business when he was 19. So at mm. 21, I felt like I was behind the eight ball and I was like, you've made me want to start my own business. Yeah. He created a monster. 
Yeah, <laughs> I am the monster. And that's why now I call him and when I ask him for advice, I'm like, you did this to me. You have to deal with this, these questions. <laughs> yeah, I remember resigning to my boss, Chris, at that time. It was like the worst. It was the worst thing ever. It's probably the worst resignation I've ever had to give. He's Resignations just, I, are hard and I you just very talking hard. to your bosses about how you're feeling or where you want to go. But I've even said to my staff, like it's a very strange thought that we feel like we owe our bosses that ongoing commitment. Like you have responsibilities as an employee, yes, but it's crazy to think that you will, you know, grow old and and die within one company. Like it's a natural progression that at some point you will leave. But why are those conversations so hard to have? Well, I'd say it's because there's a tribal element to it as well. Like th- this is your tribe. It's um, it's why when you resign and that in-between period of starting in a new job is filled with uncertainty until you start that new job and you're like, ah, oh, right, okay, I did make the decision, but so- the right decision, but sometimes you don't. Sometimes mm. you go to a new workplace, it's like this place is fucked. Mm. <laughs> so I I can totally understand that. That's, that's what at least what I've felt when I've been – um, at places, how did he feel when uh, he found out you founded an agency? Although it's not a direct competitor, it's in a similar area. Yeah. Well, I mean, the whole reason that I ended up working in cassette was because I entered a competition to have a website built, which was pitching this written editorial platform that would one day become an agency. So it was like he knew. And Charlie and I had had conversations about that total honesty between employees and employers and this idea of communicating your exit strategy, which is something I discuss with my staff. I, when mm. they start, I say, tell me when you want to leave. And they're like, what do you mean? <laughs> and I say, well, how long do you want to be here? Like, I can't, I don't expect you to be here till you die. If you want to be the CEO of a fashion house in five years time, let me know and I'll try and help you get there. I'll help you grow to that position so that you can leave with those skills. And then also it's not a surprise when you Mm. decide that you want to leave. And I can factor that into my business pipeline. And I think that that's something I suggest to a lot of people, like try and factor that into your employees, like pathways so that you can set each other's expectations and manage them. Yeah, that is really good. I quite like that. Mm. Um, As part of that, like, you know, what, what are the goals that someone may have in the company over their period of time? Uh, you can align what they want to do. Cause some, cause there's always that, like you just know for, I know for a fact of having been an employee and being an employer, there's some, there's always a little bit of a veil there. Mm-hmm. Like you're always holding something back, at least for myself, because you know, I wanted to found a business or run a business. It's very hard in a company to tell someone that because they're just going to think, Oh, well, this person's fucking off. And so why would I put this time into them? But I think by, by putting it out there, getting a bit of vulnerability out there, you sort of dispel it straight away. Yeah. And it's, but it's mutually beneficial. You can be like, cool. You want to be CEO of a, you want to start your own media agency I'm going to train you up to have the skills to do that. But in getting those skills, it's going to benefit me for the first five years. Yeah. When, when you founded Willow and Blake, I think this was 2012, mm-hmm. um, who were the first clients that bet on you? So I remember Jess, Bree and I making this decision to go through every one of our Facebook friends and see or understand who had a business and then just message them and say, hey, we'll write for you for free. And there were a few people who really backed us, probably first and foremost was Christian Klein, another Bayside guy who you might know, who decided to bring something like 20,000 jelly bean sandals from China to Australia. And we were like, well, we'll do the social for you. Like we'll make it work. And he yeah. was just like, great, sure. And that was our first foray into social media and tone of voice development and just strategy across influences, all of that. Like that was our first deep dive and he let us do everything. And Christian's still a good friend of mine and obviously he's gone on to do a lot in the Melbourne hospitality scene and 
we chat every now and then and, and laugh about kind of where we're at with business and where we've been. And like, and we met when we were 17 on bloody nightclub dance floors. So yeah. that's been a really interesting journey as well. But I think he has an incredible work ethic and his, his business mind and his creative mind is always on. And yes, yeah, so he was yeah. one of the first people who bet on us and allowed us to try new things. What, um, what was the nightclub that you guys met at? Oh, I reckon we, we we probably met through, I mean, there's so many. When I was like 17, 18, I was dating a promoter, so I went to all that was between like <laughs> play school, motel, cushion. Play school. Just the ones that we all went to, you know? Yeah. Um, time. I was trying to, like, he was, he was prominent. That classic, there was always this photo on his Facebook profile of like, dark background and like a smiley face or like a lit up face. Um, mm. It's had Even the edgy such, or the Bowie. I'm like, yeah, wow. The, the, the edgy. Back. Yeah, the edgy. <laughs> I remember the best ever night I had out, even though I was still underage at the time, was a night at the edgy. It was just, it was the best. Wednesday night and it was um, Prosser, blonde yes, guy. Oh God. <laughs> yeah. yeah. This, this is the days well. of like... Um, Stevie. Yeah, yeah. Scratch Stevie. and sniff t-shirts. Yep. Scratch and sniff. Yeah, I remember. What school like, did you go to? I went to Brighton Grammar. Me, my, my okay. brother and I got a scholarship. We were very lucky to go to Brighton Grammar. What, Otherwise, year? what year were you in? Uh, you I graduated finish? 2008. Okay. I graduated 2006. Yeah, so you're, you're a few years before me. Mm. Um, yeah, I remember my Stevie t-shirt was like an investment. <laughs> <laughs> For me, because like I just like we just had no money, and uh, I worked and saved up. I worked at Hungry Jacks. I saved up for this shirt, and it was like it would only come out on like Friday, Saturday nights. Yeah, and it was the same fucking shirt, and I got so much shit for it um, because I was not in the popular group at all until like you know year nine or ten, and then I had this fucking same (laughs) T-shirt. Yeah. Those are the days. Um, so, Aiden, um, I'm not sure how long you worked with him, but um, the two of you, somewhat similar backgrounds. I mean, he he went to RMIT. I know you did journalism. He did some form of um, architecture, then got into writing and went into his own business as well. So there's some similarity there in terms of going out on your own. But then he came and worked for you guys. And I guess I was interested, what was sort of the... Um, because I think Willow and Blake really defined him um, in terms yeah. of creative. You guys, um, not right in a similar way, but you have a tone of voice that is very overt as well. It's very distinct. Um, so I'm guessing there's been something that's been imparted there. So what was sort of the main thing that you wanted to put on him as a creative? Like, was there a, a one-liner that you gave him over the years? <laughs> <laughs> oh, we've had many long, long conversations. So no, no, probably one lines to be honest. But Aiden and I had a really great working relationship, and I loved bouncing ideas off of each other. Like some of my favorite clients that I worked on was Aiden and I specifically on jobs, and we would typically come up with the idea in the first five or ten minutes. Like we had such a good creative chemistry, especially in the initial. Um, idea sort of strategy or workshop sessions and then it was just about sort of rolling it out and I think one of the things that I have learned and still am learning throughout my career is like it can't just be the idea it's about the rollout of the idea and really making sure it's informed and that it makes sense and Aiden and I I think both typically are drawn to that initial idea stage and then don't want to do a lot of the work (laughs) that comes after it but it was about committing to that you know, putting the hours onto the keyboard and because what comes out of that is actually really strong and something to be proud of. But I think we both have a natural resistance and aversion to that. That's so funny because that makes sense why he has a whole cadre of uh, copywriters Mm. in a White Fox marketing now. Mm. He's just the guy that, okay, like let's brainstorm some ideas and then you go do it. Mm -hmm. That's so funny. Well, we're, okay. we're big picture people yeah. and that's what I'm learning to Like I'm not great with detail. I get quite fatigued with detail, but I'm very good at sort of, 
yeah, walking to a room being like, it's this and then leaving. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I am learning that there has to be a little bit of compromise there. And I learn a lot from, I guess, going into the trenches of detail. And it's something that I'm trying to put more energy into. Yeah. Well, that, that was the thing I was trying to work out because there was in a few interviews that part of your process for good copy is knowing your customer and talking like they do. And I, I just think that in this case, when we do these interviews, the only way to do that is you just have to consume everything. You, you so must nice. become like a, a machine of media consumption and then your brain will just figure it out in the process. Sometimes you'll be thinking about it in the shower. Um, eventually, you know, like with, with most interviews, it takes me three days to put the notes together because I'm letting my brain sort through all the shit. Is that sort of how your process works? Are you just consuming everything and iterating that over time and saying this is the right fit and this is how it should look? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I never would have thought this was my thing, but, uh, you know, upon reflecting, I really understand that that's where all my time goes. Yeah. I don't have a TV. I'd say I watch people. And people find that fascinating. They're like, what do you do with your time? And sometimes I'm like, yeah, I don't know where my time goes. <laughs> Great. It, yeah, I read a lot and usually I don't read much fiction at all, to be honest. Like it's so always spent trying to understand humans and understand their behaviour or understand the people who started something and what drives them. And it's funny because now when people ask what I do, I feel quite uncomfortable saying that I have a beauty brand or a makeup company. That doesn't feel like what I'm doing. I feel like I am talking to people and trying to understand them. And this time around, the vehicle to do that is makeup. You know, in the past it was a cafe and then it was a writing agency and before it was a skincare line. It's just been these different avenues that I've been pulled in that have helped me understand people and why they buy what they buy, like why they consume what they consume, how they see themselves. And so it's a really interesting journey for me, but that's what I obsess over is just like people and what they're thinking about and what they're doing. Yeah. So you're a, you're a black box. You're an AI. It's machine learning <laughs> in yeah. the form of e- Erica and uh, there's no deciphering what is the actual uh, particular process. It just comes in and something good comes out. Yeah. Ideally. And that's, and that's probably a lot of people are like, oh, you've done a lot of things and I don't look at it that way. I'm just like, I've just been pulled in different directions over time. Like my energy wants to go there and I do it. Yeah. Well, I think then what is key, because people will ask me stuff around this is what, what is actually not the principles, but like what is the consistent things that you do? And I think it sounds like you, you do some similar things where you read a lot. Um, you sort of sound like someone who's always trying to improve. You don't sort of sound like you're comfortable sitting, mm-hmm. you know, like, yeah, I think we, I don't know if we spoke about it on air or off air, but speaking about being on the peninsula and how you sort of can't stay there for longer than three days or a week or so you need to come back to a, a city environment, obviously when yes. we're not in lockdown, is there anything else do, that you think I've missed there that really adds to that process? Yes, uh, just learning and like curiosity is a, a really big thing of mine. I, uh, I'm always asking why, which is very frustrating for people. Um, and, you know, I'm sort of, I've, I can't remember the last time I went on a holiday just to stop or holiday. I really enjoy traveling whilst working. Or I just feel like there is so much to learn about the world. Uh, and I don't understand people who don't have that inquisitiveness or curiosity, I mean, each to their own, but I am more drawn to people who are yeah. always questioning. That is who you are. Mm. What, what have you been re- reading recently then? So I just finished a short collection of essays by Audre Lorde. It's called The Master's Tools Will Never Dismantle the Master's House. And she's a black feminist and it's just like a little 50-page short story. That was really beautiful. And then I've just started reading The Body Keeps the Score, which is all about trauma and trauma residing in the body and how to deal with all different types of trauma because I'm very interested in psychology and therapy and um, intergenerational trauma at the moment based on like what I've been learning in therapy. 
Yeah. And I just find that fascinating. And probably because there's so many gaps in my childhood or just understanding the parts of people and why we are the way we are. And trauma is a very loaded word and it sounds quite aggressive, but it's like we all carry past experiences and, and understanding how that defines us and how that impacts our behavior and our relationships is fascinating me. So I've been diving deep into that world. Yeah. Um, I finished The Will to Change, which is an incredible book on men, masculinity and love. Mm-hmm. Highly recommend. Um, the Dance of Intimacy, which is very interesting as well. Um, and then, but then, so the only fiction I really read is like children's books, weirdly. Right. And I'm obsessed with classic Winnie the Pooh, um, A.A. Milne, and I always go back to that. Okay. Do you, with your books, do you prefer uh, physical books? Yes. Or, yeah, okay. <laughs> okay. I have an aversion because I spend so much time on the screen, I cannot do a Kindle. Um, yeah, and then um, I read a lot of online content, so it's like I love my bookshelf. Yeah, I really, really struggle with that. Um, one of my biggest dilemmas in life is carrying around too many books when traveling. Yeah, mm, um, I collect books when I travel. Yeah, and I hate myself for it because my luggage is so heavy. But <laughs> yeah, that's the big issue: is it takes up a lot of space. I think though, I assign memories to books, and so. Yeah. A lot of books, I'm like, I bought this in New York. I bought this in Copenhagen and I remember the store I bought it from and I remember the shopkeeper and the conversation we had. And or any books that I just order over online, like there's not that sentimental value. It's mm-hmm. crazy. Like I realized how much sort of sentiment I put into books and it probably goes back to my dad and like reading, like I assign memories to it. So you do you find that you have quite a mnemonic memory then? Like you, everything that is a, like, do you have a very good memory? For some things, yes. But like a lot of my friends laugh because I have this argument that everything you own should be an extension of yourself. And so pretty much everything in my house has a story and I can tell you where it's from and why I got it and how much I paid for it and the person that sold me it. And I struggle with things that don't have meaning or feels right. very strange to me. Yeah. That sounds like a mnemonic memory to me. Mm. Like you, ta- I touch a lot of images to memory. So otherwise I really struggle with memory. Yes. Like I can't, I can't do rote learning. Mm. Yes. Like I, can't, I can't learn lines or anything like that. It's something I've always struggled with. Um, you, you mentioned before about therapy you know, I, I agree. Psychology is fascinating, particularly when you go and see a psychologist. I don't know if you read the DSM, but that is uh, no. That is that is a very interesting read. But it brings me to a point. One of these things that I wrote about was um, found a life. So I've read all of your Medium mm-hmm. blog posts or journals, which was very very interesting. It felt a little bit naughty. It felt like I would found my sister's diary or something like that. And <laughs> I shouldn't be reading this thing. Um, That's nice. It was interesting because, you know, like Elon Musk has this quote that um, being a founder is sort of like chewing broken glass and staring into the abyss. And the bigger the job you take on, the bigger the piece of glass, I guess, or the bigger the abyss. Um, mm-hmm. I would say having a business has upsides that that you can't get with money and only mm-hmm. like only experiences that you can get through having a business like building a team or impacting people and, and stuff like that and so i find that it seems at least with your personality as an a-type individual that at some point you probably would have come to the realization that that is who you are and you sort of can't get away from it mm-hmm. when when was that moment for you I'm still learning about myself and trying to accept myself. Yeah. But leaving Frank Body was like definitely a pivotal point for me in terms of in a lot of aspects, having ticked off a lot of boxes or what a lot of people would deem as a successful career and life mm. and choosing to acknowledge that I wasn't happy and that I wanted to do something else and then actually doing something else. I had to confront a lot and I think I'm still confronting a lot about that 
evolution. Like it's been three years and that's a, it's a long time, but it's also a short time because that period and those friendships and that business defined my identity. And so I had to really kind of build that up again from scratch. And I think everyone is invited to question where they're at in life all the time. You know, that's, this is the problem I think with, I guess, society's pressures on career. It's sort of like you choose and that's it, but we Mm. can constantly evaluate our position and what we're doing and how we're feeling. And that's something that I have tried to be so much more open to. Yeah. Do you find that there, cause I know you, uh, I think you've mentioned that you meditate. Are there things that sort of help you quell that intenseness of your personality? Meditating definitely has been like a long journey for me, like now over 10 years. And yeah, I wouldn't be probably where I am without that practice. Mm. Journaling definitely and the medium articles that you read are just one part of the journaling that I do. Like I write every day and mm. I read over my journals too, which is actually a new exercise, but something that is really valuable and sometimes being brought back to that time and place and being like, oh, I remember what I was going through then. Mm. And then other times not recognizing the person that has written those pages and being like, who wrote that? Where did that come from? <laughs> How far do you read back? Well, so I, I have lots. So I have probably had like eight journals that were from last year that I was reading over. And then I still have a few journals from when I was like 10, 11, which occasionally wow. I get out. And that's really interesting to just see what I was drawn to and interested in at that age. Yeah. Do you, do you, um, I'm just trying to find the name of this book that, that Tim Ferriss suggested over the years. And I used it. It's not the five minute journal, but it's just about writing in the morning. Yes. So there's a book called The Artist's Way, which That's encourages it. that, which I have read. Yeah. So I write every morning and that helps. And, and getting past that idea that sometimes you're just going to write crap, but it's mm. better that that comes out of your brain than that it stays in. Yeah. And just get part rid of, of it. the process. Yeah. I find with journaling, that was the biggest thing for me is just mm. getting the shit out of my head so I can sort of um, mm. not relax, but just uh, not think about it. Mm. And whether that's like personally or whether it's creatively with work, and that was something I encouraged with Aiden too. I was like, we have to write a hundred shit names and a hundred ta- shit taglines before we get to something good. But trying to remove that like fear or shame around a bad idea or a bad tagline, it's like get it out to make room for the good ideas. Yeah, yeah that that isn't I think an incredibly important process. I feel mm. like a lot of creatives skip that. They realize that they don't realize like you need to spend a lot of hours just pumping stuff out. Yeah. One of my favorite quotes is from Hemingway and he's just like, when someone was like, how do you write? And he said, I sit at the typewriter until I bleed. And sometimes (laughs) you've got to do that. And I have done that online. I have sat and stared at my computer for four hours. And then in the last 15 minutes, the idea comes to me and it might not have come without those four hours beforehand. Yeah. Speaking of sitting at the typewriter and, and writing until you bleed, um, I found it really interesting, you know, the exit from Frank. I sort of, as you've said or hinted to, you had a sort of a moment there where you were like, okay, this is, I'm changing. I need to move on and do something else. You had that holiday for four months, I think it was. Mm-hmm. And then uh, it seemed like the typewriter at least was calling you back. Uh, and I guess within 12 months, fluff had come about. Um, It's really interesting. I think the branding is very, very good. It's very Apple-esque. I don't know what it is. I feel like it's, is it the modularness of the inserts that gives you potential to do things? And that's when I was thinking like, what sort of, um, what does you see is the greatest uh, upside in this business? Is it that, the product is almost like a platform or is it that you can own the entire supply chain with this fluff standard that you've coined a few times? What do you sort of see as the, the biggest upside at the moment? Fluff is such an interesting journey for me because it's such an experiment. I'm still learning and I had a conversation this weekend 
where I was like, I don't have the answers. I don't have an elevator pitch for you. I, like <laughs> I threw it in the bin. Like fluff is a three-hour conversation at Marion over wine with a croissant. Like I need to spend time with people to tell them what we're doing and what we're learning about. And when I started, I was like, there has to be more than what's happening in beauty. So our biggest reason for being or what we say we're trying to discuss is that the future of beauty is more than makeup. And so then that begs the question, well, what is it? And we're like, that's why we exist to discuss it and to change with that and to understand like the issues that we have and the issues that consumers have and then see if we can address it or be better and then tell that story along the way and Mm. kind of demystify the whole process of building a brand and building a company, which is what I try to do through those medium articles. And they are quite personal and they are uncommon. Not many founders invite you behind the scenes into their business and then the effects on their personal life. But I just figured why not? Like someone should understand that this is a really hard journey and that's not me saying that so you feel sorry for me it's just like there's so many layers like I'm not trying to create an Instagram band that I sell in two years and get rich like I am trying to do something with meaning and a value yeah but the rest of the world or the rest of the industry is not really in favor of creating value over a long period of time like they're looking for fast cheap wins yeah yeah I think you you sort of um you hinted that with Frank Body, there was an interview there somewhere where you mentioned that you had you had not all the money in the world, but you had more money and you were lacking something at the time. After the this is before fluff came about, so I mm-hmm. feel like this is where where the gap was, and maybe this is what fluff is mm. that thing. Do you? Because that's that's an interesting part. Maybe that's the control freak element. Maybe that's why you didn't have that with Frank Body. Maybe mm. now that you have not complete control, but fluff is you and you are fluff. Maybe it's one of those things that you look at it and you go, okay, I could do this for 20, 30 years. Definitely. I think there's an element of control in that I feel like I'm guiding or steering the ship more. Whereas Frank body was sort of just like going in a direction, like the mm. waters were taking us there and we almost just had to roll with it. And we didn't, we sort of started as just this fun side project. There wasn't that initial, like, what are we trying to build? What are we trying to change? And that was just how it happened. And that was fine. But then I had the opportunity to be like, do I want to control this a little bit more? Do I want to derive a little bit more meaning? Can it have meaning? And I will challenge a lot of people that, you know, our work days are a significant part of our lives and we all have the opportunity to create meaning for, from it. So why wouldn't we? Yeah, I agree with that for sure. I think um, one of the interesting things in those blog posts that you wrote about was um, I think it was in number 16 and you were talking about, uh, you know, four months into your last update, the studio, this is all like COVID related, obviously. The studio was closed so the team can continue on. Everything's remote, yet you're growing launching new products, some saving the business. Investors are asking for three-year plans, which I found really interesting um, amidst the pandemic. But this quote was fucking gold. Like, I am 90% sure about where we're going, 70% sure about our messaging, 50% sure about our methods and tools, 25% sure about forecasting, and 0% sure about anything I've just said. <laughs> <laughs> Love that. Um, yeah, it's hot- true. There's so much that's... So much can change tomorrow. Yeah. In hindsight to February 2020 and the last eight months, um, what do you sort of look back at with fondness over the last eight months? Because there are some good bits of over course. the last eight months. Yeah, and we have to find them. Otherwise, it will be very depressing. Um, and I am very actually grateful for the sort of clarity and the time I've had to stop and assess where fluff was and where it was going because we were building up this momentum that I was losing, I think, clarity and control over. So it's been great to pull back to really ask myself what can fluff afford to do, not just financially but in terms of 
our energy and our time and our resources and to make like decisions that feel really conscious and informed um, and to to just look and be like, is what I wanted fluff to be what it is right now? And if not, how am I going to change that or what am I going to do about it? And just mm-hmm. again, like my biggest challenge is always slowing down. Like I am, I have this default to go quite fast and move quite quickly. And I think at times that I've balanced it or I've figured it out and that I'm at a good pace, but then I, I can definitely get pulled back and I have to be like, no, keep slowing down. Like keep, keep figuring this out. And what, what do you, how do you look at the next six months? I know I'm, it sort of always sounds like you're asking for a soundbite, but Mm. um, like I, I just try at the moment I'm trying to think about every week as it comes like I don't know how I can think about, I can't visualize December right now. I can't even visualize being in, outside of the five kilometer bubble. <laughs> so how are you thinking about that in your head? Are you in a similar mindset? A very similar mindset. I can see up until December and then in some ways I have no idea. But we've really just been trying to, just like firmly put our feet on the ground the last six months or at least till the end of this year so that we feel comfortable and really confident in all the decisions we've made and have this sort of strong foundation of our products and our, our brand and our messaging so that next year when things may have normalised or when we have a, probably a clearer picture of the world and the economy and how the industry is going to operate, we can make better decisions. Yeah. Um, so we've sort of been doing housekeeping the last six months, it feels like. Like yeah. tidying up all the loose ends, figuring out what doesn't work for us, what does, and then really trying to take a different approach to our content and messaging and having a little bit more time to work on that. Yeah. Getting the strategy right, I feel like that's been key for us. Um, yeah. Yeah, checking in on strategy is so important. I feel like a lot of people feel like it's something you do once and never again. <laughs> so you should constantly it's be constant, like, where yeah. are we at? Is it working? <laughs> yeah, I'm telling telling clients this all the time and sometimes it's it's hard for people to accept, but it is it is the way it is. It's like sort of giving your car some maintenance. One hundred percent. Um yeah, I, I feel like if you can get through the next if you can get through to the new year, if, we're, if businesses are still existing and doing okay Feb, March, then you will survive the yeah. next decade. I think... Um, and it's okay to say to people you're in survival mode. Yeah. I think the pressure we have in startup world is that you're constantly moving or constantly, um, I guess, talking about how successful you are or what achievements you've made. Whereas it's okay to be like, we're just surviving right now. We're just yeah. holding on. Yeah, I'm That's notorious That's an achievement that. in itself. <laughs> yeah, I'm always trying to over-exaggerate, over-exaggerate things that are happening when the reality is, you know, it's not always as rosy as what you think it is. I, when I was reading this piece, I, I was very interested if overnight, um, and I was trying to think of an, uh, a situation where this would exist. And the only thing I could think of is overnight, you're personally bankrupt. So you can't be a director of a company. So you can't be, you know, you're a serial founder. You can't found another company. What would she do? What would you do? I'd probably just get my friends to employ me <laughs> in a similar way. Or I would just, yeah, I'd just say to my friend, I want to start this, but you can be the director. Okay, there you go. But, so, but the, my big dream, like eventually one day I want to own a store that sells couches and books and wine so you can come and read a book on a couch with a glass of wine and you can buy all three things. Have you been to Japan at all? No. Okay. I must. My sister would, lives there at the moment. Really? Japan mm-hmm. is like particularly Kyoto? Um, but Japan is very much like that. My partner and I are obsessed with Kyoto because most cafes you go to have a bookshelf. All the seats are couches predominantly. Like half the restaurant is your standard. There's one thing we noticed when we came back to Australia is how fucking loud cafes are. Oh you can't God, do anything awful. here. 
Um, Remember when you'd go out with your parents and they'd be like, it's too loud, I can't hear. And you'd be like, oh, God, you're so old. I'm that person now. I'm like, I can't hear anything. Can we leave? Oh, fuck. Yeah, I am that person too. But um, (laughs) one of the best things that we did in Kyoto, I'm just trying to um, think of the cafe we went to. It was a suburban cafe around the corner. Um, I think it was called Suki Suki or um, Kushi Kushi. Um, And we would just do work because we, we were running this business and we still didn't have employees then. And this is probably October last year. And we're just sitting there. And my, my favorite thing was just doing work on the couch. They have the, the one thing the Japanese do really well is perfecting Western cuisine or like changing, mm. adding a little bit of Japanese flavor to, uh, <laughs> to whatever they're doing. So they, they would have, um, like this lasagna and it was so light as a lasagna that you could just demolish it. Um, Cause the, the problem I have with lasagna is like you eat it and you'd be like, Oh, yeah. like it's just full on. So little things like that um, or just even getting spaghetti with chopsticks is a nice <laughs> different thing. Before we get into these rapid fire questions to finish things off, mm-hmm. I've got to ask, you've done a lot of media, um, a lot of podcasts. What do you get asked regularly that you hate? About Frank Body. Just, oh, okay, about Frank. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think it's 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 slowing down now, which is good. Um, people get it. Yes, people, mm. I think, get it or that I'm really passionate about. Or I, I get tired of talking about kind of social media and that that's all a business is. Like I want to talk about slow growth and what it is like the purpose or why it is that we're doing this. Because I think if we ask more of those questions, we'll realize that so many businesses don't have that. Like they exist just to make money. Mm. And I'm not opposed to making money. I think money and wealth is just an energy and it rewards people who do good things. But I think consumers are becoming so much more savvy and want to know a story and want to be more conscious about who they're buying from. So that's what I would want people to ask more about. Yeah. Is there a particular question that you wished people asked you? I think I wish that people would ask me why building a company slowly is a better option. Why is that? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, we need like another three hours. What I'm learning is that going slowly is it benefits like yourself as a founder it benefits your consumers and it benefits the world hopefully because we have enough crap and when you go slowly you actually have to answer like why you exist or why you're doing it and taking that time you actually might end up being like the world does not need this yeah you get to you get to zoom out and be like what is the point of this so how do you because you must struggle with that a lot how do you temper that because as an a-type person you must be like grow 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 i know that yeah like, all i do is look at goals and things to do and stuff like that so how do you it's, stop that it's the hardest thing ever <laughs> it's a daily struggle for me and i'm lucky that i have a really kind of core group of people that are holding me accountable to this sort of slower pace and who ask me questions and challenge me as to why I'm making certain decisions. Mm. Um, I think the reading that I'm doing and the content that I'm surrounding myself with or consuming reaffirms why I'm doing this. And this is the problem I think with social media or content is that if you exist in the bubble that just tells you to grow, if you consume hustle content, like that's what you're set up for, you will believe that it is right and true. But there there is an alternative and that's sort of what I am pursuing and wanting to share with people and I want that to be the more common narrative. Mm, I would agree with that. Um, Hustle porn is one of those um, things that is so strange to me. Um, And I I was wrapped up in that and it's just like no. It's Um, not good. (laughs) You know what's really interesting? Because I I feel like their social media has created a massive vacuum um, for long-form content. And people, the growth of YouTube and the like is really showing that. I found recently this new niche called entrepreneur uh, sort of analysis. Mm. And it's fascinating. It's basically people who break down a lot of topics that are spoken about in entrepreneurship and the prominent people that push them. 
and how really it's sort of a method that they use to sell you some shit to stop you from starting your company. Like I find it really interesting. I know Gary V is part of that hustle culture, but he'll go do these talks with all these people selling you courses and basically he'll be the last one to talk and then he'll shit can everyone to come on before him. He's like, don't listen to these guys. They're selling you an $1,800 course to go do whatever. I can't stand that stuff. Like mm. uh, there's one guy I can't stand. I'm trying to do a video on him at the moment. Adam, um, not Adam Savage. Uh, Adam something. He's got big, I call him Uncle Chompers. He's got mm. big, big pearly white fake teeth on the Gold Coast and he's always selling Amazon courses. Mm. Uh, and he does my fucking head in. So, yeah. Yeah, if you want some fun, go look at uh, Contrepreneur. Uh, I will. Contrepreneurs. Um, all right, rapid wow. fire questions to finish off. What does your morning and evening routine look like? I wake up at six. I make a black coffee and I write mm-hmm. for one hour-ish, whatever comes out, and I try and write some short stories. Um, I meditate. And I do a few stretches and I go for a walk and then I start work. And do you start emailing at 7.30? No. So emails don't start. I have my first stand-up meeting with my staff at 8.45 and emails start after that. So I literally reserve 6 a.m. to 8.45 to like me. To like whatever. Learning, yeah. writing, meditating, walking. And how do you decompress at night? I'm guessing reading. Yes, um, just I listen to like music, like a lot of piano and classical music lately. Like that's how yeah. I wind down. Okay. Anything in particular that you've listened to that you'd recommend for people? I listen to this album called The Last Place by John Hayes every single day. Okay. And he's a young American pianist and he's incredible. My friend Mitch sent me the album and, yeah, I listen to it every day. John, what's his name? Hayes, H-A-Y-E-S. Okay. Classic American spelling. <laughs> like everything has to be really I know. symboled out. You can't just put the S there. It's going to have to <laughs> Um Yeah, my mate sent me some uh, – I, I quite like a bit of modern classical music. Six Nossiens. I don't know if you've uh, – no. Yeah, he sends me random stuff all the time. It's really good to listen to. If you had to put a billboard anywhere in Melbourne, where would it be and what would you put on it? Probably somewhere, maybe somewhere in the city or maybe as you're coming into Melbourne from the airport, I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. And maybe one of Fluff's kind of big statements that we say, which is I'm prettier now that I don't care. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is your line. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a good one. I like that. Uh, last question for you. During all of this, all this lockdown, what's been your go-to item in the fridge? You'll laugh. My fridge has nail polish and like a bunch of kale in it. It's never full. Nail <laughs> polish? <laughs> I don't even pay my nails, but it's in there. Um, cool. Probably... Um, I eat a lot of Brussels sprouts. <laughs> that's like the one vegetable that's on rotation. Yeah, um, right. And but yeah, there's been lots of wine in the house. Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah, mm. I live opposite a wine bar, which I just renamed my cellar. <laughs> I'm guessing they're doing takeaway at the moment. They are. <laughs> Any particular wine of choice that you've been going to? Um, I love red wine and I love French and Italian reds. I just, I'm sorry, just not into Australian wine. Really? Much. Yeah. Are you, are you um, not one of those Blackheart and Sparrow snobs, but like, a, <laughs> you know, do, do you, are you like, oh, yeah, I need skin contact wine, pure organic, all that sort of stuff? I enjoy those wines, but yeah. I'm not like, oh, only this. But the same yeah. thing, like to come full circle to your conversation, there are friends who will bring me a bottle of wine that I've never seen before and I trust their opinion. And then other friends come to my house and I'll just be like, I'm not drinking. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> that has to be the most awkward thing is when people bring alcohol for like drinks over at your house and, and you know, like, actually, this is probably a bit better. 
a bit nicer. Let's just uh, have this. We'll t- we'll keep this as a gift. <laughs> we'll <laughs> have it next fun, time. Though. It's just like I try not to see that as same thing with other people. It shouldn't be rude. It's just like people have different tastes. Different people like different things. Exactly. We should embrace that. There you go. I'm just going to record that snippet, <laughs> put it on my phone and say, look, see, she said it. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> it can be your reply to many conversations. Yeah. Um, Erica, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks uh, for you've probably me. got a busy day ahead of you. Where can people find you on the interwebs? I mean, yeah, my Medium article is probably a great start, which is this Medium, Erica is Fluff. Mm-hmm. Um, my personal Instagram is, you know, I'm trying to make it more interesting or relevant for people, but it's just really like me and my day um but that's my full name and then it's all fluff.com or it's all dot fluff for our social is where we're trying to do beauty content differently so i would start there yeah we'll link all of that but um erica thanks for coming on thanks for having me thanks for listening in to this episode if you like it do leave us a written review on your podcast app as it helps us continue going on a weekly basis and we do love reading those reviews as well. Uh, If you want the show notes, you can find that below or with our previous guests at neural.com slash podcast. That's N-E-U-R-A-L-L-E dot com slash podcast. To watch the full video, search Uncommon Show on YouTube and to keep up to date with behind the scenes and clips for the show, you can find us at Uncommon underscore show on Instagram. But until next time, guys, thank you so much for listening.